We're reading from Luke chapter 11. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to the friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the God, and we, Lord, we thank you for these words as we read and consider together your word. Bless the following uh, time as we consider this passage and minister to our hearts by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's be seated together. Okay, so this section focuses on prayer. It's so important. It's it's a beautiful passage for us to consider that Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, the effectiveness of prayer, the importance of prayer, the privilege of prayer is covered for us in this passage. And may we also be encouraged also in our privilege and opportunity to pray. So let's look together, verse uh, 1 of chapter 11. As we read together, it came to pass, he was praying in a certain place. Now in the book of Luke, particularly out of the Gospels, we see the Lord praying. Luke speaks of Jesus framing him and picturing him as the Son of Man. And therefore we see him often in prayer. With key events, we find that beforehand, Luke records, he prayed. He went up to the mountain and prayed all night. Before he chose the disciples, he prayed. Before the transfiguration, he prayed. Before he was baptized, he prayed. And Luke makes notice of that. And the disciples, as they were with Jesus, as they were being discipled by Jesus, they observed this in his life. 
they saw that the key to his spiritual life, his ministry, his relationship with the Father was that he took time to pray. And it says he was praying in a certain place. And when he ceased, and I imagine the disciples hearing him pray, watching him pray, sensing that there is something profound, something incredible happening, not just words, but they would sense the faith, the communion as they watched. And therefore, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now that in itself is a good prayer, isn't it? Teach us to pray. That's a good prayer. And there is need for that. Is there anyone here that has perfected prayer? Anyone who prays enough? Anyone who has, you're satisfied completely? No, we have a hunger as the disciples did. As this disciple made the request really for all the disciples, teach us to pray. And we would have that same desire in our hearts even this morning. But they weren't just saying, teach us how to pray, but they were saying, teach us to pray like that. What they witnessed, what they saw as they observed him, and afterwards they just could only say that. Could you teach us to pray like that? So, we know that in religions and even in Judaism, that many prayers are just repeated like formulas like a model form prayer that's just repeated, but this was something much different. And we could ask the question, and the disciples asked the question, as we see how they pray and how they pray, oh, but we see how you pray. And how should we be praying as Christians? So Jesus answers with what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. But he wasn't giving the prayer so that it will be something that would just be repeated in some empty formula that sadly we have witnessed in different churches and perhaps even in your childhood and background. I remember in Catholic school and RE classes and the, our father, you just repeat the prayer and how sad that is if it is reduced to that. So Jesus answers with this prayer, not as a mechanical formula prayer just to be repeated, but as an example, a model prayer, as a structure, if you will, as a pattern of prayer. And in fact, as I heard, listened to Jeff and prayed when Jeff was leading us in prayer, I saw many of the tenets of the Lord's prayer in the prayer. It was a wonderful example of that. So they weren't given the prayer to repeat they didn't say, teach us a prayer. They said, teach us to pray. We love this passage. We love this prayer. Sometimes in our assembly, we may even recite and pray this prayer together. That's, that's wonderful to do that. But we are also very cautious because we know how familiar we can become, how religious we can become, how, how that prayer could easily just become something that misses, misses the whole point. We are careful not to just allow it to become an empty formula, and we would apply that to all tenets of the Christian life, in our devotion, in reading the Bible, etc., not just the words, not just the action, not just the formula, but heart, faith, passion. But many people pray that prayer without that, without understanding. 
we learn a lot from the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says there, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, or some translations say, vain repetition like the heathen, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Verse 8, Do not be like them. That makes it clear, doesn't it? What does that say? Do not be like them those who pray with empty, vain repetition. Make sure that your prayers are filled with faith and reverence. And if we can pray this model prayer word for word with faith and passion, and that's beautiful. But B, we are also careful. This is how we are to pray more than it is what we are exactly to pray. When Jesus prayed, he prayed from the heart. So he says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that a curious expression? When you hear that, don't you ask the question, well, why pray then? If the father knows what we need before we ask him, why pray? Because the answer to the prayer is not the only issue. It's communion with the Father. It's a relationship. It's an expression of faith that blesses him, that exalts him, that glorifies him. In other words, he's saying, listen, don't play religious games. I know what you need, but I delight to hear your voice. So come on, ask of me, speak to me, challenge me, pray to me, believe me. I don't want it to be silent. I know what you need. I could give it before you know what you need. And I could give it before you ask. But I want you to pray to me. I want us to have communion. I want us to have relationships. So he says, do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. It makes it clear in Matthew's account. Pray, not pray this, but pray in this way, in this manner, like this. I remember when I was in Bible college, we had one particular class. It was on sermon preparation. And some of you might say, boy, you should go take that class again. <laughs> and I remember as we were gathered there, and of course the question in our heart is, teach us how to prepare a sermon, Right? And rather, and of course, there are principles of sermon preparation with context and study in the Greek language, etc. But on this particular day, the pastor said, let me show you. And he, opened, he got down on his knees and he opened the Bible on the, on the chair as all of us young, uh, hopeful preachers were watching. And he began to read a psalm. And as he read the psalm, he began to turn it into a prayer. And he praised. And we were watching with our notebooks. 
And I tell you, I received so much more instruction from that than I would have ever reading a book about how to preach. He, he showed us something that was deeper. He showed us communion, what it means to go before God, to step into the presence of God. And we, if you like, we're all witnessing him in his quiet, private, you know, in, in with the Lord on his own, as if we weren't there. And I think that's like this prayer that Jesus was showing them. It was something more than the words, but it was learning the principle of communion. It gives us so much uh, insight. So let's go back to Luke in chapter 11. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. Our Father. This is, this is so key. Oh, Lord, please help us understand this and not miss this. This would have been so powerful for the disciples to hear. This is where he starts the prayer. It is on who you are addressing, that as you are praying to God, you say, Our Father. It should get our attention this morning. Let me read you a few verses in Romans 8.15. It says, You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, listen, children of God. Galatians 4.6 And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit uh, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Uh, one time, Alistair Begg, he said this, he said that God's immediate act at the new birth was to put one word on your lips. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that profound? That one immediate thing that God did when you were born again, when you became a true believer by saving faith in Christ, that God put this word on your lips, that he sent his spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. And that sense of our access to God is so profound, so beautiful. It, it is what gives us that witness, if you will, the spirit witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God and God is our Father. Ephesians 2.18 For through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. The Trinity is in that verse. Through him... By one spirit, we have access to the Father. Oh, treasure your access to the Father. We are speaking about God. We are speaking about the God of the universe, the one true God, the creator God, the sovereign God of all. He who is from everlasting to everlasting. He who spoke all things into being. We are speaking about God, and in this passage, we are, and many passages in the New Testament, we are told that when we were born again or when we were adopted, we became members of His family, and God became our Father. Wow. It's so astounding. It should stop us in our tracks. 
And I believe that that as the Holy Spirit shows us that more and more on our Christian journey, it revolutionizes our prayer life. But not everyone can rightfully call him Father. It is not the fatherhood of God in the universal sense of every person on the planet. That's not what the scriptures describe. In fact, multitudes, sadly, across the planet and globe, pray this prayer, our Father, and he is not their Father. But the Father is is identified for those who have become his spiritual children. So John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. There it is again, and this might make some of you feel uncomfortable, but I don't apologize because I'm a preacher of the Bible. And if you don't like it, take it up with the Bible. Talk to God about it, but this is what it says. Not everyone are children of God. That a man is lost and he must be found. He is unsaved and he must be saved. It's not by works. It's not by religion. He must be born again, the Bible way, the old-fashioned way. He must turn to God and believe in Jesus. And in that moment, he is regenerated. He is justified. He is sanctified. He is regenerated. He is redeemed. He is sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's not a work of man for God. It is a work that God does in man when he turns in his sin and he looks to Jesus. And he is born again. He is adopted into the family of God and then he has the right and the privilege to say, Father, to God. Relationship with God as Father. Wow, amazing. Being religious doesn't cut it. Going to church doesn't cut it. It's not enough. In itself, it means nothing. I could read read the Bible. I could sing hymns. I could go to church. I could recite prayers. And it means nothing without faith unless I am born again, unless I come in humility before God, unless I recognize my need, my weakness, my sin, and I come to him on the grounds of grace alone. In fact, the religious crowd at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, those who should have known, those who were supposed to be representing the truth, in John 8, 44, not only did Jesus say, God is not your father, but he says, your father is the devil. John 8, 44. So, it doesn't say my father in this prayer, it says our father, you notice that? And that, again, highlights the principle of family. If he is your father and he's my father, that means we are brothers. We are in the family of God together, and we pray this prayer, our father. We have a corporate understanding together that we are people of grace. We don't deserve this, but somehow, here we are. Maybe you didn't have a good father, Maybe you didn't have a father. I didn't. Maybe you had one who wasn't a good father. Maybe you had a good father. But it doesn't change the fact. We know what a good father is supposed to be. We know what a bad father is. And we have learned together as Christians that God is a good father. 
our spiritual Father, our heavenly Father. And this is the next phrase. Let's go back to Luke. Our Father in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean we think of God as being far away, right? Of course, he is everywhere present, all at the same time, omnipresent. And when we look up to heaven, those in Australia are looking up to heaven. <laughs> it's not we're looking up to this little region. It's, it's all of the vast expanses beyond the, beyond the second heaven or the known universe to this sphere where, where God uh, dwells ultimately and focused in his presence at the throne room, of course. But more than that, God is everywhere present, but it is this sense of recognition that God in heaven who relates to us on the earth, we have access to him. And, oh, the speed of light is astounding, but the speed of prayer is even more astounding. The effect of faith that God in heaven hears our prayer in a moment. God in heaven who is very close to us. Changes everything, doesn't it? Sometimes you might say, well, I don't pray because I feel as though I'm not worthy. Well, I would say, remember the words of the prodigal son in Luke 15 when he says, I will go to my father. And how the father delights in that. The next phrase, hallowed be your name. And the word hallowed means to recognize or regard something as holy. In other words, may everyone regard your name as holy. So there's a focus here on, on recognizing the sacredness of what it means to address God. And I love how this comes right after our Father in heaven, that we wouldn't in the wrong way become familiar or sentimental or flippant with that idea, oh, God is my Father. But immediately, hallowed be your name, holy he is my father. Oh, but when I come into his presence, there is a reverence, a respect, an understanding that I am in the presence of holy God. Hallowed be your name, that we carefully guard him as being the one who is set apart, the one who is exalted and magnified and worthy. Hallowed be your name. Name in the scriptures represents uh, the, the full character, the attributes of God. It is a, a prayer of being reverent in the heart and recognizing that God in his full person would be recognized and set apart and I am in his presence. And when I do that, off come the shoes. Off come the shoes and I say, oh, this is holy ground for God is here. And I'm not praying in the familiar sense and I know that we, we're guarded against that. I'm sometimes convicted in my heart. On the, we, I pray with Allison in the morning. And sometimes I say, oh, Lord, help me. Help us. Oh, please don't let us just fly through our prayers. It's easy to do that. We all do that. It's okay. God is gracious. But, oh, Lord, teach us what it means. Hallowed be your name. It's like the threshold of the prayer room, isn't it? I'm going into the prayer. I'm going to speak to my Father in heaven. And then, hallowed be your name. And then, 
the prayer looks to God's ultimate purposes. Look at this. Your kingdom come. Father, hallowed be your name. And then looking to the ultimate purposes of God. Your kingdom come. The spirit and the bride say come. It should be burning that hope in the heart of every believer. We sung it this morning. Come Lord Jesus. That recognition of his ultimate return, his kingdom come. I heard someone say the other day that they have some Christian friends that don't believe in the second coming. And I I didn't even know how to respond to that. I was like, what? What? How is that possible? (laughs) That you are a believer and you have the Bible open and you don't believe in the second coming. There is so much watered down, namby-pamby, compromising teaching of the Bible that spiritualizes everything, that makes everything relevant and relative to now and us and the church, and makes the, the kingdom the church, but they are distinct. It doesn't make a distinction between the the Jewish people of God and the Christian church. It doesn't make a distinction between the church age and the kingdom age. And I be free in your interpretation, but I I can't see that. I believe in a literal interpretation of the scriptures brings us to a literal kingdom on the earth when Christ returns. And I believe this is uh, captured in this phrase, your kingdom come. Now, of course, whatever advances his purposes, when Jesus was here, he said the kingdom is among you. Paul said the kingdom is within you. We understand Jesus is the king. And in that sense, there is a kingdom principle that through all his redemptive purposes we recognize, but ultimately the fulfillment will be when he returns. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now again, your will be done on earth, that will ultimately, in the fullest sense, be realized when he returns. But certainly pieces are being moved around on the, on the world stage and through history to set for the time when he will return. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Uh, in the daily details of our own life, in our local church and on the world stage, we can pray this. Your will be done. Now, that doesn't mean that, for example, when we look to the Middle East or we we consider history, that everything that happens is ordained or purposed by God. We know from the story of Joseph that God uses the hands of evil to bring about his purposes, that God works things together. We are horrified by many of the things we see. But as Christians, we have a biblical perspective And we can say, we don't understand everything, but I know this, that you are good, you are faithful, and your will be done on the earth. And then he he relates in the next verse, the prayer goes to the personal needs. Now notice that in the framework of this pattern prayer for us, to recognize God as our Father who is holy, to pray for his purposes to be fulfilled and his will to be done on the earth. That comes first. And then give us our daily bread. I love that. 
we don't just want to launch into our list of needs, and we can do that. It's fine. We understand. But I'm just there's a good principle here. Give us day by day or each day our daily bread. And the present tense here suggesting a continuing daily provision, not just bread, but God meeting our daily needs for life. Perhaps as as a 21st century Christian, this is a healthy reminder for us always for our continual dependence upon him. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins. Meet our needs and forgive us our sins. As a Christian, you have already received forgiveness in the full legal sense. But on a daily basis, we need forgiveness each day. How healthy it is to realize that as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That's wonderful. That's woven into our prayers. We do that. We aim for that. Help us if we do not do that. We want to be good stewards in our life. Matthew 18 speaks about the unforgiving servant, remember? And he was forgiven so much. He begged, please forgive me. He was forgiven so much. And then he went out and he found his fellow servant who owed him much less. And his fellow servant begged him, please forgive me. And he took him by the throat. And he said, you will pay. And he threw him into prison. Was it? He threw him into prison, right? And you read that parable and you think, what that, what, there's something desperately wrong with that. That he did not allow that to affect his life. He did not come to terms with the debt that he had and how much he was forgiven to give him the capacity to forgive another so little. We say, oh, you are forgive, forgive us as we forgive those who indebted to us. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another as God forgave you for Christ's sake. So there is the prayer, forgiveness for sin, now protection from sin. And do not lead us into temptation. Forgive me for, for sin, but also do not lead me into temptation. Keep me from sin and deliver me from the evil one. The devil tempts us to sin, and when we sin, he condemns us. And Jesus pleads with us that we would not sin, and when we do, there is forgiveness for us. How different that is. That God gives me grace not to sin, but then also he gives me grace when I do sin. And may that break us and humble us and help in our growth and conversion recognizing the weakness. Oh, that's beautiful. And he delivers us from the evil one. Did you know that you have um, an adversary, an enemy? Uh, That is, in fact, um, uh, what his name means. Satan, the devil, the accuser, the enemy. 1 Peter 5, 7. Your adversary. Peter is speaking to Christians. He said, your adversary, the devil. It goes to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the armor of God that you could withstand uh, against the evil one on that evil day. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual, uh, spiritual powers and forces. 
And then after this, Jesus goes to a parable. He's teaching a principle right after laying out these principles of prayer. He teaches a parable to show God's willingness to answer. And let's just quickly uh, finish with this this morning. In the, in the ancient uh, Near East, hospitality was so crucial, how you would welcome and, and, uh, uh, visitors and travelers. And he says, which of you shall have a friend go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come on his journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he said, um, verse 7, yeah, and he will answer from within, say, do not trouble me. I cannot, I cannot rise and give to you. So what you recognize, imagine going at midnight or the middle of the night. Hey, can you help me? I, I need, and there is something bold, shameless about that. And in fact, that's what the Greek word means. Where it says persistence. The idea is this bold shamelessness. I'm so aware of my desperate need that I don't care what, what, what do you think? I need to ask. And that is what Jesus is teaching in this principle. This shameless, bold request, recognizing my need, and I'm going to ask. Verse 8. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is your friend, yet because of his shameless, bold persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. We humble ourselves and ask for help. James 4.2 says, often you have not because you ask not. And God is saying, ask. At midnight, in your desperation, and don't, don't, don't question it. Just come and ask boldly, shamelessly. Come and ask. So I say to you, there it is, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Now, again, this is in a present tense. This implies continuing action. Some people say, I knocked, and that's it. No, this is continuing to knock, continuing to seek, continuing to ask. It's not according to your timetable or your way. God who knows all things and wants the best for you more than you want it for yourself will answer his way, his timing, but he will be faithful. And he confirms that in verse 10. For everyone who asks and continues to ask receives. He who seeks and continues to seek finds, and to him who knocks and continues to knock, it is opened. Verse 11, for if, and then he turns back to his audience and he says, his disciples, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Or he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Pause for the answer. I mean, how horrific that is to even think of that, and that's the point. If then, he doesn't need an answer. If then, you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks him? Now, the reason he says Holy Spirit here, because the Holy Spirit wasn't yet fully given to indwell every believer. This was a request you would have as a believer. In Matthew's account, it says, 
your Father in heaven will good, give good things to those who ask him. And that's the point. The Holy Spirit will be the, the best thing you could ask for. And he's saying he will, not, he will give you the best if you ask for it. But notice, and this will answer the question that some of you have in your heart at this moment. You say, well, it seems that God doesn't answer. It seems that God doesn't give the good things. And I think often that's because what you think is good and what God thinks is good is not always the same. I think when we will get to heaven, we will not only thank him for the prayers that he answered, but we will thank him for the prayers that he didn't answer in the way that we wanted, in the timing that we wanted. Notice, your Father will give good things to those who ask. Psalm 84, 9, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold to those who walk uprightly. He answers. But we may not be asking for the right thing in the right way, the right timing. We are mere mortals, most of us. And we do not understand all things. We do not know why God does all things. We, sometimes we have to stand back in our personal lives and the world stage and we say, God, I don't understand all things. But I know that you are good, that you will bring about your purposes and your way is not my way. Your timetable is not my timetable. You are God and I am not. And I will trust you. And I will believe you and I will praise you and thank you and glorify you when you answer. And I will praise you and thank you and glorify you when it seems as though you are not answering because I believe that you are working. Maybe your answer is not right now. Not your way, but my way. And again, James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss means your motive is not right. So prayer is not like a push-button vending machine. I go up and I push the button and I expect it to come straight out. But I pray in Jesus' name. I go to, to, through Jesus by the Spirit to the Father. I pray in the Spirit. I pray by faith. I pray according to His will. I pray with the right motive. I seek, I ask, and I knock, and I continue, and God will answer because he is faithful. Our Father in heaven is good, faithful, and true. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, our Father, we come to you in this moment by faith. Holy is your name. We recognize that you are our Father, that you are holy, that you are true, that you are everywhere present, you are all-powerful, you are all-knowing, you are the one true God, there is none like you. We bow in our hearts this morning together, our Father, hallowed be your name, or your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You come, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come, we ask and pray. We ask and pray and thank you for meeting our needs, for our daily bread, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for helping us, enabling us to forgive others. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Praise you. Praise you. Keep us 
from temptation, keep us from the evil one, strengthen us, lead us, guide us, help us. We all sense our frailty, our needs, our weakness, our sinfulness, our pride, and help us see that in the, in the, in, in the context of your great grace and mercy towards us. Perhaps as one here this morning or listening online, you are not sure of your salvation. You are not sure if God is yet your Father or it is through Jesus the Savior. Come to him today, even in this moment. Say, Jesus, save me, that I would be born again, that I would be adopted into the family of God to know God as my Father. And use these thoughts to help and bless each one of us on our journey of faith and our relationship and coming to know you. Help us in our lives, in our prayers, in our ministry. Bless our families, our responsibilities, our health. You know our needs. We give them to you afresh today. In Jesus' name, amen.